Good morning, everybody. I want to take a second to brag on my creative team a little bit. Uh, pretty amazing. If you're new to the church, everything we do, we do in-house. And um, the videos, the graphics, uh, even the last worship song we sang was, was uh, written by our church. I mean, just a lot of really neat stuff. So really proud of that. Also, if you are a man in the room and you weren't here Friday, you missed out on a really, really good Men's Summit, we had nine, a woman cheered over here. We had nine, we had 940 men in the room, uh, a lot of guys. And, and I'll, I'll brag on our pastor from our Cannon County campus. He just wrote a really good book on biblical masculinity and they gave that to everyone and he kind of taught some of the, the, the big points from that. And it was a really, really good evening. It's kind of neat to sit back and see almost a thousand guys just worshiping and got to have some real talk and, um, Really, really good. Okay, so we are in uh, a new book of the Bible. I've never taught this book of the Bible before, and, and it is dramatically different from the last couple of books that we've gone through. We just got done with First and Second Peter, New Testament. It's a lot of doctrine. It's a lot of theology. It's a lot of very clear kind of bullet point instructions on what we should do, what we should not do. Now, you flip back to the Old Testament right after the book of Nehemiah, uh, or I'm sorry, right before the, right after the book of Nehemiah, right before the book of Job, and we have Esther, which is one of the few books in the Bible that doesn't even mention God, even though God is all throughout this book of the Bible. And it's a narrative, so it is a completely different writing style and a completely different approach to learning things than the last couple of books of the Bible that we've covered. Another thing we're gonna talk about today is Esther is going to bring up kind of 30,000 foot view ideas. What that means is in First and Second Peter, when we're talking about, again, bullet point, uh, theological, doctrinal things, right? This one is more kind of overarching ideas like different topics like things of excess and pride and fear and irresponsibility and being hypocritical. It's talking about these, these bigger things. So as we work through Esther, and here's the interesting thing. This book was written 2,600 years ago, somewhere in that ballpark. People haven't changed much, right? So the same mistakes they made 2,600 years ago, we still make today, and we can learn from reading historical books like this on how to maybe not fall into those pitfalls. So last week, if you weren't here, we did our vision service um, in an act of passive, uh, passive aggressiveness. I, I, I said, if you missed that, you should go back and watch it because um, some of you weren't here. And so uh, go back and watch the vision service. It's important to know what our church is doing. It's important to know where our finances uh, are being put. It's important to hear what God wants to do with us in the future, um, all kinds of things, okay? Like, for instance, next weekend when you come in here, this wall will not be here and we'll have a little bit more room in our sanctuary. Those of you who were here last week, you knew this, right? Uh, those of you who weren't, um, it's not gonna be as cramped next week. And that's, that's the, the fun stuff, right? that you get to hear. Go back and watch that. This week though, what we're gonna talk about through Esther is we're going to focus on these bigger principles. We're gonna talk about the dangers of living excessively, of living in pride, of being afraid, right? Of irresponsibility and of hypocrisy. Another thing is, if you have never been with me through an Old Testament book of the Bible, I am no scholar in Hebrew names. I have to write out things phonetically. Here's my little post-it note. So when I get to Memu Khan, it says Me Mu, like a cow, Khan, right? It says that on my paper. 
and this helps me pronounce things to the best of my abilities. If you happen to be a Hebrew scholar in here, and I always say that jokingly, but without a doubt, someone always comes up and goes, you said that wrong. And I'm like, okay, I prefaced it with saying I'm not the best at this. I do, I do the best I can, but, but show me some grace on this, please. So before we get started in the lesson, I wanna give you a little bit of history, a little bit of background, and I will say everything is on the notes that you got when you walked into the room. Everything will be on the screens, okay? And if you have the app, everything is under sermon notes, scripture and everything. Little bit of background on Esther though. The first thing is, is no one knows for sure who wrote this book of the Bible. Jewish rabbis and Christian theologians and historians believe it was probably Mordecai. We will get to him in chapter two. We're not gonna talk about him in chapter one. We'll get to him in chapter two. More than likely though, he is the one that authored this book of the Bible. This book of the Bible would have been written in about 400 BC. So again, like I said, about, about 2,620 years ago. So quite a long time ago. This would have been after King Xerxes' reign in Persia. And we'll talk about that here in a second. And this would have covered events that took place about 65 or 80 years before it was recorded. So about 486 to 465 BC, just so you kind of know the time frame. okay? A little bit about the author, a little bit about the time. Now, if any of you in this room, in, in, in a, lot of, uh, a lot of ladies like the book of Esther because it's focused on a woman, a lot of people who get into this and try to dive in and really study Esther in a deep way, if you've ever tried to do that, you've probably been frustrated. There is not a lot of information on this book of the Bible and on this piece of history. And there are actually some critics that believe that these people never existed because there is no mention of Esther, Mordecai, and some of the other people in this outside of the Bible. There are no historical records of these individuals besides what we have in the Bible. Now, the problem with saying that, well, then it means that this never happened is there's very few historical records of any figures except for the, the Persian king and the people really close to him in history because most of Persian history was actually written by the Greeks that defeated them so we just don't have much to go on, period. But when you read the book of Esther, when you read the times, when you read the major uh, people in it, like Xerxes, when you read about what went on, it lines up with history perfectly. So we can safely say that these were real people, real events, these things took place. Like I said though, the big thing we're gonna get from this book of the Bible, we're gonna, we're gonna kinda step way back, right? And we're gonna talk about these big overarching principles and themes. Some like the fact that everyone is prone to, to make mistakes and to be selfish and that God uses unlikely vessels. I think a lot of people when they study Esther, if you ever watch any videos on Esther or read any books on Esther, we, we have a tendency to kind of embellish Esther and Mordecai as kind of these perfect people and they weren't. We're actually gonna, because all, none of us are perfect, right? So we're gonna discover and studying this a little bit deeper um, that they made some mistakes too. They had a tendency to be a little selfish at times as well, right? But that, that's good. It's good for us to know because all of us are prone to mistakes, but God, is, God wants to use all of us. We also are going to see that God is sovereign. All that simply means is that nothing happens outside of the scope and knowledge of God, right? He knows everything that's going to happen. He knew all these events were going to take place and he has control the whole entire time. He's sovereign. We're also gonna learn that evil always self-destructs. 
that when we live in evil, when we live in debauchery, when we live with no restrictions, right? When we live however we wanna live, it always falls apart. We're gonna talk about that a little bit and we'll see it actually in chapter one. And then one of the big principles that I, that I want us to pull out of it, because I think we're, we're living this in our culture now, is how do we, as followers of God, balance out our allegiance to God in our faith? How do we balance that out and still live within a non-believing society? How do we do that, right? How do we have our integrity with Christ and our faith in God and then go out into a world that doesn't believe like we do? That's one of the big things that we're gonna talk about through Esther. Another thing we have to be careful of is this. We do this a lot, especially in American culture, right? We do this a lot. We want to insert uh, a 21st century culture into something that was you know, before Christ, 400 and something years before Christ. And it doesn't work that way. So if you try to take our cultural norms and insert them into a book that was written 2,600 years ago, you're gonna miss the main points. So though culture changes, it's changed a lot, right? Uh, people haven't changed that much. You know, men and women still fall to lust and greed and we still fall to, to hypocrisy and we same, they make the same mistakes. So we would be wise to look back throughout history, right? And try to not fall into the same traps that the people before us fell into, okay? All right, you guys are so quiet today. That's all right, we're good, we're good, okay? So I'm gonna pray. We're gonna get into this. Uh, you guys are gonna show me tons of grace on my different Hebrew names. It's gonna be a really good morning and, uh, and we'll see where God takes us, okay? Let me pray. Father, Lord, we love you. God, we thank you so much, Lord. Thank you for everyone in this room this morning. <sighs> Father, as we work through the, the, the first chapter of this book, Lord, let us pull out the big lessons that we need to focus on, God. Bless us, Lord, for, for getting into your word, God, and, and just genuinely looking for answers. And we don't just pray that you, you bless us and keep your hand on us, God. We pray that you bless every church, God, in our community. We pray that you bless our other campuses and the churches in those cities, Lord. We pray, God, that you, you keep your hand on the nonprofits that we work with. And Father, our biggest prayer is that at the end of all this, Lord, we pray that you are glorified, that your kingdom is advanced, God, through us studying the word, and through us applying these things to our life. Lord, we love you. We thank you, God. And we pray all these things in your son's name, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'm gonna read a little bit. We'll go back and we'll break it down. I hope you find it interesting. It's, it's a pretty interesting, pretty interesting chapter. Okay, here we go. These events took place during the days of Ahasuerus, who ruled 127 provinces from India to Kush. In those days, King Ahasuerus reigned from his royal throne in the fortress of Susa. He held a feast in the third year of his reign for all his officials and staff and the army of Persia and Media, the nobles, the officials from all the provinces. He displayed the glorious wealth of his kingdom and the magnificent splendor of, the, of his greatness for a total of 180 days. At the end of this time, the king held a week-long banquet in the garden courtyard of the royal palace for all the people, from the greatest to the least, who were present in the fortress of Susa. White and violet linen hangings were fastened with fine white uh, and purple linen cords to silver rods 
on marble columns. Gold and silver couches, that's not color, that's literal solid gold and solid silver couches, were arranged on a mosaic pavement of red feldspar marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Let me pause again. To give you an idea of, of how grandiose that this guy lived, right? Not only were their whole couches made of solid gold and solid silver, in the flooring, there would have been precious stones, diamond, rubies, different gems in the flooring, right? So that's how elaborate this guy's life was. Drinks were served in an array of gold goblets with each, uh, each one had a different design. Royal wine flowed freely according to the king's bounty. The drinking was according to a royal decree. There are no restrictions. The king had ordered every wine steward in his household to serve whatever each person wanted. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women of King Ahasuerus's palace. Okay, now here's what's going on. First, I need to address this because people do this all the time when they're debating Christianity. So if you happen to be a scholar in the Persian Empire, because again, one of these days, one of you is gonna be out there, right? Ahasuerus first is the Hebrew name for King Xerxes. I would rather say Xerxes because I can say that a lot easier. That's the Greek name, right? But the Jews would call him Ahasuerus. So the author says that King Xerxes, see what I did there, was in charge over 127 provinces. Now, if you're a scholar in Persian history, there was, they didn't have that many provinces. There was only about 31 provinces of the Persian Empire. So instantly, someone will read that and go, I told you the Bible was bull, right? I told you that it was all fake. They got this fact wrong. But if you study a little bit more, the author, who is more than likely Hebrew, was probably mentioning all the, mentioning all the sub-regional areas as well. And there would have been well over 127 of those. So the Persian Empire, I don't know if you guys are map geeks, I kind of like maps. The Persian Empire was a pretty vast empire. And at this time, this was the majority of the known world. So this was the most powerful empire on planet Earth. Xerxes was the most powerful man on planet Earth. If you don't know where you're at here, this is Northern Africa. You have Sudan right here, this is Egypt. And you can see that his empire stretched from Northeastern Africa all the way through the Middle East, um, over there quite far and up north quite a bit as well. It was a big empire. He was a powerful man, a very wealthy man. He had conquered what would have been, would have been the entire known world at that time. So why does the author talk about gold and silver couches and marble pillars and fancy gemstones that are in the floor? The reason why the author is mentioning all this very audacious decadence is we're setting up a contrast. There's a contrast of two ideologies, two cultures. The first one is the selfish decadence of the Persians. The contrasting culture or ideology is the humble wisdom of the people of God, of the Jews. Now here's, here's kind of our first overarching thing that we have to deal with. We are dealing with two choices. These have always been the two choices of humanity. Either we follow the pursuit of self, which leads us to decadence, it leads us to excess, it leads us eventually to self-destruction, or we promote the things of God. 
which lead us to humility, which lead us to wisdom. So these are our first kind of first fork in the road that we reach in this lesson. What kind of ideology do we want to live in? So King Xerxes, right, quite excessive, threw a party for 180 days. That's half a year, six months. Threw a party for the nobles, for the officials, to, to basically boast about how wealthy he was, right? Hey, you, oh, you need a seat? Just sit on the gold couch over there. I mean, this guy had a ton of stuff showing his splendor, his greatness. Now, some of this was just a, a really wealthy guy flexing how, how wealthy he was. Another part of this was, was a political thing. So the Persians were about to go to war with the Greeks. Spoiler alert, they're gonna lose to the Greeks. But what they were doing is, is Xerxes was basically saying to all the people in Persia, hey, don't worry, see if this sounds familiar. Don't worry, we will never fall because look how comfortably we live. Just let that one soak in for a second. <laughs> On your way home, you'll be like, holy crap, he was talking about America. Anyways. So he sat back and because they had excessive things, because they lived in a very prosperous thing, right? No one had any wants and desires. He was flexing that saying, don't worry about the Greeks, right? We'll be able to take care of the Greeks. Now, one of the most important things about chapter one that I find really, really interesting is there was actually, listen to this, a decree by the king, right? A decree by the leadership of a nation saying, listen, when you're with me, when you're partying with me, there are no restrictions. So after this six-month party, I guess that wasn't enough, he had a second party after the six-month party, and at this one, he invited everyone, not just the nobles and the officials and the people who were high on the hog. He said, everybody, you're welcome. Let's indulge, you know, hang out in my lavish palace, engage in this decadence, drink whatever you want, have sex with whomever you want, do whatever you want, it would have been extreme debauchery, extreme debauchery. And I'm not recommending anyone watch this. You probably shouldn't, I probably shouldn't say it. But there's a documentary on Netflix about Woodstock in 1999. And if I was 20 years old when that happened, and I remember being 20 years old and watching the news and seeing the fires get set and all the reports of all the drug use and people passing out and women being raped and all this kind of stuff because there was absolutely no restrictions. You bring half a million people to a field and go do whatever you wanna do for three days. And then we sit back in horror, right? When everything's on fire and people are getting hurt. Imagine that kind of debauchery during this week long dinner with King Xerxes. It was unlimited access to unlimited pleasure. No restrictions. One of the biggest lies in American society today is that we should have no restrictions. And so here's the other interesting thing. So as the king is on one end of the palace partying, right? At the very end of this part that I read, the author says, and on the other side of the palace, all the ladies were doing the exact same thing. Queen Vashti was having a feast for all the women in King Ahasuerus' palace. And so in Persian culture, the women partied just as hard as the men. They had just as much casual sex. They were just as materialistic. They drank and got drunk just as much as the men did. So on the other end of the palace, they're going crazy as well. Now, here's what's interesting. The reason why the author, more than likely Mordecai, a Jewish man, the reason why he didn't mention any details about the women engaging in all this debauchery, get this, 
is because he respected women so much that he didn't want to put them down even though they were doing something wrong. So even 2,600 years ago, you see the progressiveness of the Bible when it comes to how they treated women, that they cared about the reputation of women and didn't want to slander their name. So he decided to omit, basically, that the women were partying just as hard as the men, okay? So on the seventh day, when the king was feeling good from the wine, that translates to drunk, in case anyone doesn't know, right? Were you drunk? No, I was just feeling really good from the wine. Ahasuerus commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abgatha, Zathar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who personally served him, to bring Queen Vashti before him with her royal crown. Let me pause there one more time. I highlighted this because in some translations it says with only her royal crown, which led some people to believe, I don't, I don't think this is the case, but I mean, it's not outside of the realm of possibility, that this drunk king called for his wife and wanted her to walk in this room with a bunch of drunk men only wearing her crown. Okay, just wanted to point that out. He wanted to show off her beauty to the people and the officials because she was very beautiful. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command that was delivered by the eunuchs. The king became furious and anger burned within him. The king consulted the wise men who understood the times, for it was his normal procedure to confer with experts in law and justice. The most trusted ones were Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, or Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marcina, and Memukan. They were the seven officials of Persia and Media who had personal access to the king and occupied the highest positions in the kingdom. The king asked, according to the law, what should be done with Queen Vashti since she refused to obey King Ahasuerus' command that was delivered by the eunuchs. Now there's some really, really interesting stuff in this. Okay, the first one is this. At the end of the second party, Xerxes commanded the eunuchs. If you don't know what that is, and I'm not trying to get crass or graphic, these were men who were biologically altered so they didn't have to worry about them around women. And these men would stand guard typically over the women's quarters. They would protect them and the king didn't have to worry about some other guy trying to sleep with his wife or sleep with the other women in the church or church. In the, yeah, you don't wanna do that either. In the palace, right? Okay, gotcha. So, huh. that's the only thing you guys are gonna to remember today. Corey said that we have these biologically altered men that keep other people in the church from sleeping with other people in the church go viral, lose my job. Anyways, so the king, the king sends these eunuchs in the palace to go get Vashti to come back and basically show off how beautiful she is. This is a very chauvinistic, uh, uh, twisted masculine, bad masculinity thing to do, right? So this man says, look how, look how wealthy I am. 
Look how powerful I am. Look how big my house is. And kind of the coup de gras, right? Or the icing on the cake is, let me, let me show you how hot my wife is, right? Hey, someone go get my wife so I can parade my trophy wife around and all the guys can be jealous because my wife is so attractive. And I love her response. <laughs> no, right? <laughs> She's not gonna do it. So, so picture this in your brain. You have the most powerful, wealthy man on planet Earth, and everyone's just enamored by all his accomplishments. And then he says, go get my wife. Imagine the eunuch that had to walk into the room and say, she said no. And so Xerxes is standing there, and you can imagine everyone's probably stunned. It's probably very, probably people sobered up really quickly at this point. Some gasps in the back, right? Oh my gosh, she's not coming. And his pride was damaged, right? This is why he was angry. Now, when it comes to pride, C.S. Lewis said one time that he thinks pride is the source of all sin. Selfishness is the, is the source of all sin. So in response to Vashti's refusal to obey, this is funny, Xerxes consulted with the wise men. This was basically his legal counsel. He wanted to, 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 to find an answer to this embarrassing situation. The problem is this, in authoritarian regimes and dictatorships, people never would go approach other people about personal matters because they were too prideful to think that they could ever be wrong. This isn't just with dictators, this is with anyone who is prideful. We refuse to go get godly or wise counsel about personal things because you know we don't want anyone to know that we make mistakes out of this hubris. So what Xerxes did is instead of getting counsel about a marital problem, he twisted it into, a, into a, a matter of national security. This is a legal problem, right? The law has been broken. There was no law about summoning your wife and having her parade around and she says no, but he created a law. And so that's what we're gonna say. He's gonna make this a legal matter. And so here's the thing. You have a man who had conquered the entire known world who owned everything, literally, and could not resolve a simple domestic dispute with his wife. And we look back and we go, that's crazy. And I can tell you, listen, me personally, I know men who are worth tens of millions of dollars that drive cars that are worth more than my house, that have houses that are worth, I mean, millions and millions of dollars, and their home lives are a wreck. They can't get it together at home. So the world looks back and go, man, they have everything. But the truth is, is they have focused so much on themselves that they have achieved these things that they have lost what is truly important. So that's why the Bible says, what good is it for a man to inherit the entire world, but lose what's most important, his salvation? So listen, you can have the most successful career in the world. You can have a PhD or multiple PhDs, you can, be no, you can have notoriety, you can be famous, you can be beautiful and gorgeous, but in those pursuits of self, we tend to miss these wonderful blessings that God has put around us like, I don't know, our children. So we're gonna talk like adults here in the room today. You're being really quiet, so I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna talk. We have a bunch, of, a, a bunch of women, a bunch of moms, right, who are trying so hard to be hot and look like a 19-year-old that they forget that they actually have a 19-year-old that wants them to be a mom, right? You guys see this too. Am I the only one? 
We have a bunch of dads who are so busy trying to climb up to the next rung of the corporate ladder that they never take their wife out. They never throw a ball with their kids or take their kids out for ice cream. They never invest in what is truly important. We have people who are constantly working for accolades and notoriety and being visible. And at home, it's a freaking train wreck. And we miss the most important things in life, right? We miss the forest for the trees. And it doesn't make any sense. And that's exactly what Xerxes is doing. A guy who had accomplished, any, had accomplished everything, right? And at home, things are a wreck. Okay, so here's what they do about it. Memukan said in the presence of the king and his officials, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but all the officials and the peoples who are in every one of King Ahasuerus's provinces. For the queen's actions will become public knowledge to all the women and cause them to despise their husbands and say, King Ahasuerus's ordered Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she did not come. Before this day is over, remember that, the noble women of Persia and Media who hear about the queen's act will say the same thing to all of the king's officials, resulting in more contempt and more fury. If it meets the king's approval, he should personally issue a royal decree let it be recorded in the laws of Persia and Media so that it cannot be revoked. Vashti is not to enter King Ahasuerus's presence and her royal position is to be given to another woman who is more worthy than she. The decree the king issues will be heard throughout his vast kingdom so all women will honor their husbands from the greatest to the least. The king and his counselors approved the proposal, and he followed Memukan's advice. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to each province in his own script, and to each ethnic group in their own language. Listen to this, that every man should be the master of his own house and speak in the language of his own people. So what do you do when you have a problem with your life or your wife? You just pass a law, right? Saying that they can't have these problems. I get a kick out of this. So Vashti hadn't broken any laws, but she really damaged this man's ego. So a decree was passed because the queen's action will become public knowledge and all the women are gonna go crazy. If someone hears that this woman said, listen, if I throw a party with all my drunken friends, right? And I ask for my wife to come in and parade herself around, she might hear that someone else's wife didn't do that and she might say no. So we have to pass a law, right? We have to make sure this doesn't happen again. And so what you see right here is you see, this is so important, you see the tools of exaggeration and fear. Exaggeration and fear. These are common tactics to shift the blame, right? And these are common tactics to control people who are afraid of losing things. So we're going to exaggerate the truth. Because the king's wife did this, everyone's wife is going to do this. We have to do something about it. And if you don't, your wife's gonna rebel by the end of the day, they said. It's gonna happen immediately. I call this the news, right? This is propaganda. 
The other day I made the mistake of sitting in my garage. I was working on one of my cars and I was listening to the news and there was a, <laughs> listen, and I'm, I'm, I'm gonna say this, but I'm gonna preface it with, we recycle at this church. Kyle just bought a hybrid. Like we believe in like the, the environment around here, okay? Well, I'm, I'm all, I think Christians are to take care of the environment, the whole nine yards. A senator got in uh, the house the other day and said, if we don't all drive electric vehicles in the next 12 years, the world will end. And I'm like, that's crazy, right? That's absolutely ridiculous. That's a fear tactic to move things in a certain way, right? That's, that's propaganda. That's exactly what these individuals were doing. They were looking out for themselves. So in order to control the population, they exaggerate, they cause fear so they can control. And so Xerxes brought in his legal counsel because he had a domestic situation, interesting, because everyone calls their lawyer when they get in an argument with their wife. And his legal counsel used hysteria to convince the king that all the noble women of Persia and media would be full of fury by the end of the day. Go back to that map I showed you, right? There was no social media 2,600 years ago. How in the heck was the word of this happening gonna, gonna spread from North Africa all the way to the end of the Middle East in a day? This is ridiculous, right? This is crazy. But they're all like, you're right, you're right. So we have to pass a law. So they passed an irreversible law that Vashti be kicked out, that her position be gone, and that would ensure that everyone's wives are going to behave. Now, fun fact, if you're studying Esther on your own or if you ever have, when they say removed Vashti, more than likely they probably killed her. They didn't exile her, they probably executed her and got rid of her. That's how they moved her out, right? And so we see some kind of remnants of that remorse in chapter two, we'll see that next week. And then here's another move of just terrific irony. You couldn't write, right, you know, better fiction than this. This is amazing. It's ironic that, that, that this insecure king who engages in drunken parties to flaunt his power, and his wealth and his wife and who cannot re resolve a simple domestic dispute, then passes a law to all the men in the empire saying, men, you better be the master of your own house. And this is just the height of hypocrisy. This is just the height of, of a very perverted idea of masculinity, right? This, this kind of Hollywood idea of masculinity to where a man walks in, he doesn't have to treat his wife well, but he should walk in and say, cook me this and clean that and take care of this because I'm the man, I work today, right? I know you were raising our three kids and you haven't slept in four days, but you need to do all this for me because I'm the man. That's essentially what this is. And then you also have this massive hypocrisy. What this is, and we see this all the time in our culture, again, it's not that I'm just trying to bash on America, but that's where we live. And quite frankly, I think we're the most twisted nation on planet earth right now. But when it comes to us right now in our society, you have a culture that is constantly telling you how to live. And in that culture telling you how to live, depression is higher than it's ever been. Suicide is higher than it's ever been. Anxiety and fear higher than it's ever been. Divorce is higher than it's ever been. There are more problems. So we have these people saying, uh, you Christians are wrong. You need to get yourselves in order. And I'm like, wait a second. I have a good relationship with my kids. I have a healthy marriage and I'm content. 
You guys are the ones that are a mess. How dare you try to tell me get my house in order when you're, this all goes back to Jesus Christ, right? That we are to not try to pick out the splinter in everyone else's eyes until we get that plank of wood out of our own eye. We're incapable of seeing, we're incapable of having the vision to help others until we first address the problems within our own house. Now, it seems like I have been really bashing on men, right? And I think men have a certain responsibility that we don't always live up to societally. But, but let's not forget the men were not the only ones who were guilty in this story. And so there's a, there's a lot of people, right? When I said, I'm gonna do Esther, all the women are like, that's right, we're gonna get those guys. Corey's gonna get those guys for us. Here's the other side. There's a bunch of men who've been waiting for years for me to say something negative about women. <laughs> but here, here's the thing, we cannot forget this. Before we just talk, uh, talk about the failures of the men, not only in Persian society, but in our current culture, right? We must remember at the beginning of this story, there was a party going on on the other side of the palace too. The men were not the only ones engaging in irresponsibility and sin. The women were on the other side of the party getting just as drunk and do as, doing just as much evil stuff as the men were. So here's the thing. Men and women may have unique roles. We have unique roles in the family. We have unique roles in our relationship. We have unique roles when it comes to our, our children and, and all, all kinds of things. We have unique roles. That doesn't mean that one is any higher than the other because both have a responsibility to live righteously. Not only that, both have a responsibility to lead with integrity. Both men and women are called to lead with integrity. Let me tell you one of the best, best pieces of, of, of knowledge that I ever heard from my previous pastor. He said, there is never an excuse to sin. Well, but my husband is not the kind of man he needs to be. Doesn't give you a right to live in sin. Doesn't give you a right to disrespect him. Doesn't give you a right to, to, to sleep with another man. Doesn't give you the right to, to do the same evil things that he's doing, right? There is never an excuse to sin. So let's talk about these overarching things. That we need. Let's, let's talk about some of these traps we need to make sure that we avoid, that we heard about in chapter one. The first trap that you and I need to avoid is we cannot buy into the lie that there are no restrictions on how we should live. In chapter one of Esther, we see the fallout, listen to this, of unbridled pursuit of ourselves. I hope you guys are hearing me this morning. You live in a culture that is unprecedented right now. You live in a society right now that says there are no boundaries to how you can think and live. We say really asinine, ridiculous things like love has no boundaries. Anyone that has a bumper sticker on their car that says love has no boundaries has never had children. Because if you have a beautiful 10-year-old and a beautiful 13-year-old daughter like I do, and a 45-year-old man were to look at them and even say, I love your kids, right, in a romantic way, boy, love has some boundaries, correct? If you're a woman in here and another woman is looking at your husband, well, love has no boundaries. The heck it doesn't, right? <laughs> love has boundaries. It's logical. It makes sense, right? It protects us. We also see that intoxication, and I'm not just talking about alcohol and drugs. I'm talking about whatever alters our sobriety opens up the door, not only for us to be damaged, for, but for everybody to be damaged. This reckless pursuit of what we want is ripping this society to absolute shreds. That's why God gives us parameters. 
I remember one time my wife and I, we honeymooned in Maui 18 years ago. Um, Maui's a beautiful place. We were driving around. There's this, island, uh, there's this part of the island way down in the south. It's in an area called Wailea where you're not supposed to drive on these certain mountainsides. We did. And there's, this, there's a guardrail. It's certain parts and other parts that are not a guardrail. The reason why they put these certain guardrails on these one-laid roads around huge mountains is because if you go off the edge, you die. You destruct, right? Everything ends. The reason why God gives us commands and principles is not because he wants to restrict you, not because that he wants to, to, to hold you down and beat you down and make you feel like you're not free. The reason he gives us the word of God, the reason why he gives us principles and commands and directives is because when we have no restrictions, we drive off cliffs and God wants what's best for us. This idea of there are no boundaries is so absolutely foolish and it will lead to self-destruction. It always has. Just read history, right? You don't, even have to, you don't even have to read your Bible to understand that that's the case. Read about the Romans, read about the Persians, read about the Greeks, read about the Egyptians, read about the Assyrians, read about anybody, right? Who has come before us. The pursuit of self leads to destruction. So there has to be some kind of guardrail. There has to be some vision and directive, and that's the word of God. That's our relationship with God. Another pitfall that we need to watch out for is there is danger and pride and hubris, arrogance. Because when we are arrogant, when we are prideful, our judgment is impaired because our egos are fragile. And in our lack of judgment, we fail to seek godly counsel. When we're prideful, when we're arrogant, when we have hubris, we fail to reach out to someone and say, hey, I'm struggling with this. Hey, I have these problems. You need to help me with these things. And in our pride, we tend to miss the greatest things in life because we're so focused on ourselves all the time. Listen, I can do this too. I just wanna let, I'm not beating up on you. I can fall into this trap as well. I can always focus on the things that I don't have and forget the fact that I, I, I live in a house, right? I have a beautiful wife, I have healthy kids, I have a car to drive, I get to do a really cool you know, job, I have a cool calling on my life. And listen, we live in the most prosperous, free nation that has ever existed. And in the United States, all we have is entitlement because we're so focused on ourselves and so taught, well, I have it so bad. All right, text me that on your $1,400 phone, how, how bad you have it. Everybody good out there? Everybody good? Tell me how deprived you are. Tell me how awful it is, right? But in our selfishness, we miss the fact that God has done a ton for us. And the bottom line is this, if you're breathing right now, you haven't earned that. That is by God's grace. That is by God's grace and mercy. We have earned and we deserve nothing. If we got what we deserved, we would all be dead or in hell right now. We deserve nothing, right? So our pride, our hubris, our selfishness, it impairs our judgment and it makes us miss the beautiful things in life, the beautiful, great things in life. There is also a danger in fear. When we're not tethered to Jesus, listen to this, when we're not reliant on Jesus, the only thing we have left to be reliant on is ourselves or people. And people always fail. All people fail. Even the best of the best fail. So when we're not tethered to Jesus, we're tethered to humans, probably most likely ourselves, 
right, and what we think, and we will always come up short. And so because we have a lack of dependency on God, we fall into fear, we fall into hysteria, and we forget that God is on the throne. If you don't know what I'm talking about, wait till an election cycle. Dead serious. Man, I'm gonna tell you what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, get, off on a, I'm gonna get on a soapbox just for a second. The only time people leave this church is not because I ever teach bad theology, and I don't mean that arrogantly. I read the Bible and I just explain the Bible. People don't leave here for, for, for theological reasons. They leave here because I'm either not political enough or I take shots at people who are political. That's why people leave this church. It's never over the Bible. People leave this church over politics, and that's stupid, right? But I'm gonna tell you this, and I'm not, I'm not leaning to the right or to the left. Actually, the Bible says not to do that, but to go right through the middle. Anyways, so I'm not leaning in, in either direction, but I will say this. Whenever the elections roll around, right, every single election cycle, a bunch of people who claim to have a relationship with Jesus and trust in God, that God is sovereign, is good, they absolutely lose their minds. If so-and-so gets elected, blah, blah, blah. Here's the thing. The Bible says that every single human who has ever been in a position of power is there because God allowed them to be there. That doesn't mean they're good or bad. It just means that God knew this was going to happen. God's not up there on election night going, oh my gosh, what's Arizona gonna do? Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna save that for the 11. I didn't say that at any of the other services. You're welcome. That was just for you guys. That was good. God is in control. And here's the thing. I have two kids and I know it's easy to fall into fear because the world is crazy. But at the end of the day, I have to step back. I have to lean on Jesus and go, God, I am alive as such a, for, for such a time as this, right? And, and, and you, you knew all this was going to happen. So I just have to trust you. I just have to lean on you. Here's the other side of that. There will always be people who will take advantage of you if you're living in fear and hysteria. Again, I call this the news, right? That's how they make their money. That's how they get you, that's how they get you glued to the radio or glued to the television, right? There will always be insecure, power-hungry, exploitive people who will use fear, they will use exaggeration, they will use hysteria to control you, right? And to get you to go a different direction and to get you to depend on them rather than to depend on your creator. There is also a huge danger and irresponsibility if we haven't seen that in chapter one of Esther. It's very easy to, to blame everyone else. It's very easy to point out other people's sins and flaws. But Jesus said in the book of Matthew that all of us will stand in front of him and give an account for our life. We are all responsible for ourselves. You can blame the president, you can blame that church that hurt your feelings, you can blame your dad, you can blame your school, you can, bl you can blame all these people. But I promise you this, one day you will stand in front of Jesus Christ and we will have to give an account for how we've lived and we can blame all these other people, but here's what God's gonna say to us. I gave you access to my spirit and that could overcome all those hurdles. So we are left with that excuse. We are left with that excuse. We are going to be held responsible for our actions and we will be held accountable. We live in a society right now though that absolutely refuses to take on personal responsibility. It's absolutely everyone else's fault except for mine. Now, that's the outside world refuses to take personal responsibility. Let me critique the church for a second. I think the church in the United States refuses to take societal responsibility. I have all these Christians going, man, 
our school system sucks, everything's broken, they're terrible. And I'm like, are you gonna become a teacher and help fix it? You gonna get on the PTO? You gonna get in the PTA, right? You gonna donate some time? You gonna donate some money? You gonna get involved? It doesn't really fix things when you get on social media and bash organizations. It probably helps if you get your hands into it a little bit, right? Put your hands on the plow. If you don't like the way it's going, get in there and help change it. Teacher, amen to me over here. But here's the thing, that's with all parts of society. When a bunch of big mega churches sit back and go, man, America's gone to hell in a handbasket. God's kind of like, well, you're supposed to be the salt and light of your area. What are you doing in the city? What are you doing in the community? Are you sharing the gospel? Man, all these kids are living like, they're, man, they're insane. Well, who raised them? Who raised them? Or who, should I say, who didn't raise them? We have to take some responsibility as the church. If I don't like the way my city looks, I need to go do something about my city. It means that I need to go out there, all of us need to, need to, need to band together and we need to go out and make an impact on our city. It is not God's plans for us to skirt our personal or societal responsibility. Jesus himself said, I've given you the light, not to hide it up, not to, not to hide it, but to, but to open it up and so the whole city can be affected by that light, right? That's what we are called to do as a church. There is also a massive danger in hypocrisy. Be, be, be the master of your own house, right? Well, first, if we're going to address the evil in the world, we as Christians have to first address the evil in us. Listen, I hope, I, I hope this comes out right and I'm not trying to be mean, but for decades and decades and decades, the Christian community has taken shots at certain demographics of people because of the sexual sin they live in, right? And they say, those people are extra bad. They're going to hell quicker than, than anyone else, right? They're gonna be in the hottest corner of hell. And in the whole time, you had a lot of men and women who were addicted to porn. It was straight porn, but it was porn nonetheless, right? And I'm gonna tell you, sexual sin is sexual sin. Just because their sin is different from yours doesn't mean that God turns a blind eye to yours and focuses laser intensity on theirs. Listen, hold on. If we're going to address the evils in society, we have to address the evil in us first. It's not that Jesus said, don't help people with splinters in their eyes. He said, first remove the log from yours so you can clearly see to remove the splinter from other people's eyes. It's not that we're not to teach the truth. Listen, it's not even that we're not supposed to judge. We are to judge righteously, the Bible says. But I cannot judge if I am living in hypocrisy. I cannot tell you that murder is wrong if I am killing people, right? I cannot tell you that sexual sin is wrong when I have this private sexual sin that I've hidden from you. And if we refuse to address the evil in ourselves, we will self-destruct. And maybe this is why the church isn't growing in the United States. So what we have to do is this, overarching 30,000 foot view principles, okay? These are the, these are the big things. We have to learn through, through a relationship with Jesus, through, through the Holy Spirit working through us, through the instruction of the word of God, we have to learn to live as humble people. I'm convinced that humility is the key that turns everything on. We must be humble. We must be so humble to say, I cannot do it alone. I cannot figure it out alone. I need help. I need God's help. I need, I need my brothers and sisters' help. 
We are to live in self-control. This is one of the fruit of the Spirit. This is why addiction is, should not be a part of the Christian's life, because we're to live in self-control. We're to live in honesty. We are to be responsible both for ourselves and for our brothers and sisters. Where do I get that from? Right after Cain killed Abel and God shows up in the garden and goes, hey, Cain, where's your brother? God knew where Abel was, right? He knew that one brother had just killed another. So why did he ask? And then Cain goes, uh, well, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I responsible for my city, right? I just go to church on the weekends for the country club motif, right? And we just hang out with each other, check it off. Am I responsible for the city? The answer is absolutely you are. That's why Jesus, or that's, I'm sorry, that's why God asked Cain, where is your brother? Because he was implying you're responsible for your brother. You're to look out for your brother. You're not to hurt your brother, right? And so, but we as a church say, well, am I my brother's keeper? Absolutely you are, absolutely. That we are to be responsible personally and for society. But listen, all of this is impossible if we are not dependent on Christ. If you are dependent on your abilities, you're going to be very, very frustrated and let down. If you are dependent on the abilities of mankind, you're going to be frustrated and let down. It is only by having a relationship with God, only by letting the Spirit work through us that we can live by all of these very, very important principles, right? That we can go out and change the world around us, change our families, change our relationships, and see ourselves change, right? It is only through a dependency and utter dependency on God. All right, would you bow your heads with me, please? If you are in this room and, and maybe you're not a believer, maybe you're looking, you're seeking, you're, you're just kind of trying to figure it out. If you're in the room and, and you fall into that category, or maybe you're a new believer and you still just got a lot of questions, up here on my right, your left, your left, Pastor Jonathan is up here, okay? If you have any questions for Jonathan, he'd love to talk with you. And if he can't answer them, he'll set up a time to get coffee with you or get lunch or something. Please come up here and talk to Jonathan. We also have men and women on both sides of the stage. If you need prayer for anything, anything in your life, please come and get prayer, okay? The last thing is all the way around this room where we see a lamp on a table and if you're sitting in the middle, there's disposable communion on those posts, on those poles in the middle so you don't have to, to, to fight the line. All the way around this room, there is bread and wine that represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ. If you have asked God to forgive you, you can take the communion and remember the cross. Remember what Jesus has done for us. Now, as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, the death, burial, and resurrection wasn't just for the forgiveness of sins. It was for the empowerment of his people. Jesus didn't just forgive our sins. He said at the end of Matthew, I will be with you to the end of time. That means that he gives us his spirit. And only through his spirit can we achieve the things we talked about today. That communion not only represents your sins forgiven, it represents the fact that you can be what God wants you to be if you will just trust in him. Father, Lord, we love you. God, I love this church so much. Father, I pray, Lord, that we can all take what your word has said today, that we can think about it, meditate on it, put it into practice in our lives, God. Father, I, I feel the need to specifically pray for this. Humble us as individuals, God. Humble us, put us into a posture, God, to where we know that we cannot do it 
on our own uh, strength. We cannot do it on our own intellect. We need you, God. We need your strength, your wisdom, Lord. We love you, Father. We thank you. Bless everyone in this room. Until we meet again, God, we pray all these things in your son's name, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you so much.